now we come to the Eucharistic prayer, which begins with another one of those curious dialogues. We hear, like we did at the beginning of Mass, the priests say, the Lord be with you, and we all respond, and with your spirit. These words have the same meaning they did the first time round. We acknowledge the presence of God in the priest acting in persona Christi and in the gathered people of God, asking that God's presence there may ever increase. Then the priest instructs us, lift up your hearts, and we respond, we lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and just. Perhaps this introduction to the Eucharistic prayer doesn't feel particularly natural to us, but in essence, there are two interconnected themes in these words which we recite at every Mass. One is the theme of self-offering, which we explored during the preparation of the gifts, when we are invited to lift up our hearts to the Lord. The other is the theme of thanksgiving, which at its core is what the Eucharist is all about. The Greek word Eucharistia simply means thanksgiving. It is the natural, immediate response when we offer ourselves to God. And so it is incredibly fitting that these themes of self-offering and thanksgiving appear together at the heart of the Mass in the first words of the Eucharistic prayer. This introductory dialogue forms the first part of the preface, this opening section of each Eucharistic prayer. The preface generally expresses some aspect of the character of the feast or the season, always in the context of this thanksgiving. It will explain why it's right for us to praise the Lord in light of the present liturgical celebration. In one of the prefaces for Lent, for example, we read, it is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, almighty and eternal God. For you have given your children a sacred time for renewing and purifying of their hearts, that freed from disordered affections, they may so deal with the things of this passing world as to hold rather to the things that eternally endure. It presents the season of Lent as a time of thanksgiving because it brings us closer to the Lord. But each of the prefaces will express a different reason for thanking God. The preface always concludes with a reference to the angels singing God's praises as an introduction to the Sanctus or the Holy Holy. This is a great song of praise which unites the church in heaven and on earth as we hear in the introduction, which might use words such as, and so in your presence are countless hosts of angels who serve you day and night. With them, we too confess your name in exultation, giving voice to every creature under heaven. And then it goes on and we acclaim and introduces the Sanctus. The text of the Sanctus itself, quite cleverly, combines two biblical acclamations, one said by angels, and another by humans. The first half, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. This part comes from Isaiah, where the seraphim are seen before God, praising him with these words. The second half, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, imitates the voices of those greeting Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so this wonderfully highlights the church on earth and in heaven, praising God at the sacrifice of the cross, which is represented in just a few moments. Now, there may be some of you who were slightly confused when I said that the Eucharistic prayer begins with the preface dialogue. In all honesty, we can use the words Eucharistic prayer in two different senses. In the strict sense, the Eucharistic prayer does indeed begin at the beginning of the preface. However, after the Sanctus, there are a number of different prayers that can be used, each of which is called a Eucharistic prayer. That makes it a little bit difficult to speak with clarity about the structure of the Mass at this point. There are, generally speaking, four main Eucharistic prayers in the Missal, although there are a number of other options for use on particular occasions or addressing specific themes. Each of these four prayers has a unique character, and over the course of time, it's possible to develop a real appreciation for the distinctive features of each. But I'd just like to mention two of the Eucharistic prayers where I have some specific observations which might make it a little easier to appreciate them and pray with them. Eucharistic prayer one is sometimes called the Roman canon, and it's a particularly unique prayer because of its historical value in the church since certainly the fifth century, although because of its development, it, it could indeed have certain components that are considerably older. For hundreds of years, this was the only Eucharistic prayer used in the Roman Rite. Because of its age and historical development, it comes across as solemn and beautiful, but also possibly difficult to understand. For that reason, in many parishes, this prayer is reserved for the really high solemnities of the year, like Easter Sunday, or for the feasts of the saints who are explicitly named during it. The way I like to pray with this text is not to focus on the meaning behind every individual word. I find it much easier to pray with it, focusing my, my attention on its incredible history and its value to Catholics across the centuries and to appreciate the general themes that each part focuses upon, such as praying for the church, invoking the saints, and praying for the dead. The other Eucharistic prayer I'd like to mention is Eucharistic prayer four. It's quite unique in that it tells the whole story of salvation history, from its special preface, which shows God existing before all ages and abiding for all eternity, dwelling in unapproachable light who has made all that is, through to the main body of the prayer, which works through the formation of man in his own image, the fall, the covenants and prophets, all the way to the incarnation and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This prayer is a brilliant shorthand explanation for the whole story of Christianity and has a real poetic quality to it. It's wonderful to simply listen to the story of salvation be told. Despite the different characteristics of each Eucharistic prayer, there are several features which are common to them all. Of these, the three that I'd just like to mention 
are the epiclesis or the calling of the Holy Spirit to come upon the gifts and make them holy. The institution, I've mispronounced one of the important words, the institution narrative, where the words of our Lord at the Last Supper are repeated by the priest. And perhaps surprisingly, the doxology, the final words of each Eucharistic prayer. Through him and with him and in him, O God, almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honour is yours forever and ever. I think that most of us imagine that the elevation is the high point of the liturgy. The words of consecration have been said, and there is this real drama in the offering being lifted above the altar. But in fact, the church puts a real emphasis upon these final words of each Eucharistic prayer, declaring God's glory above all. Thereafter, we say a number of very familiar prayers in the presence of the Lord in the Eucharist, beginning with the Lord's Prayer and moving quite seamlessly into a very beautiful prayer for peace. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will. This prayer interests me rather a lot because while it acknowledges human sinfulness, what we pray for is not so much an end to sin, but rather that the consequences of sin, that turmoil and disunity may be overcome by God's grace. Of course, the Eucharist is itself what unites us most strongly as Catholics, as by receiving the body and blood of our Lord, we make ourselves in complete union with him and with everyone else who receives him in the sacrament. So this is a very fitting moment to pray for that unity. That unity is again expressed in the sign of peace, which often follows. The outward sign of shaking someone's hand or in these post-COVID days, a polite bow, tries to capture something far deeper that intimate communion with the Lord and with one another. We then hear two short parts of the Mass, both based on biblical passages. First, the Lamb of God or the Agnus Dei, our threefold invocation to Christ to have mercy on us and to grant us peace. And then the invitation to communion with the words, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. And its response, Lord, I am not worthy that you should that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. The idea of Jesus as the Lamb of God, which we hear repeated in these texts, comes from the words of John the Baptist but also echoes the sense of Jesus as the Paschal Lamb from Exodus, one who is sacrificed in order to save the lives of others. Our response in the words, Lord, I am not worthy, come almost directly from another gospel story in Matthew 8, 8, when the centurion says that there is no need for Jesus to come to his house to heal his servant. The words are only slightly adapted for this liturgical context. So, in fact, there's a bit of a double meaning here. While the centurion speaks of the roof over his house, we speak of the roof of our mouths before receiving communion. Our sins make us unworthy, 
but God comes to us anyway and offers himself as a gift which we do not deserve. There is something truly profound that these are the last words before we receive communion. As for the moment of receiving the Eucharist itself, well, there's nothing I can say to give any kind of insight into this moment. It is simply that unique and personal closeness with God. Typically, once again, there is a time for silence after receiving communion, which allows the space to personally thank God for the gift of his body and blood. After this, the priest says the prayer after communion, which is a very simple prayer once again, that the reception of communion will bring about grace in the lives of those who have received our Lord. Just as one example of this, on the 31st Sunday in Ordinary Time, we hear the words, May the working of your power, O Lord, increase in us, we pray. So, at the end of the Order of Mass, we're going to listen to one more piece of music, which I think uh, focuses on some of the Eucharistic themes that we've spoken about today. We're going to listen to Deck, Deck Thyself, My Soul with Gladness, as set to music by Ralph Vaughan Williams.
That was Vaughan Williams's um, Deck Thyself, My Soul with Gladness. And what a beautiful song to be listening to as we meditate on um, different aspects of the Mass, um, led by Jonathan Henry as he's been taking us through the Mass in slow motion. Um, a very interesting and um, very helpful series of talks, which we sadly, at the third of the three, which he, um, which he has been giving us. And um, this is the time in the program where we usually open up the phone lines, but today, because we're broadcasting from, from London rather than from Cambridge, our lines are actually not available. So um, we, uh, we will not be able to have um, people calling in. Um, but um, I, I had a few questions of my own that I thought I might give to you and perhaps there's some parts of your talk that we could we could focus in on um, for the sake of of, um, of just uh, exploring them a bit more and we know that in um, Vatican II one of the sort of buzz phrases that came out of that with regards to the liturgy was this idea of active participation and um, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that, and we, maybe we can take it from a couple of different angles. Um, obviously, you and I have both only ever experienced a sort of post-Vatican II kind of of, um, of liturgy, but um, what do you think it was that Vatican II was trying to address when it spoke about active participation? That's the first thing. What are some of the ways in which that has been... Um, uh, played out, and what would you say is a a way you'd like to see it play out? Well, you've asked three very interesting questions there. I'm just scribbling down all three of them. What did Vatican II mean by active participation? What does it look like in practice? And then where might active participation look? Where might it go in the future? There, I think your three questions. Yeah, or, or specifically the third one was um, you personally, how would you like to see active participation? So it needn't be a theologically kind of um, uh, like informed question. It's just like you would like to see uh, active participation or it would be interesting, you know, to see it in this, this that way. Sure. So... Again, so, some of this comes on to, um, you know, almost the historical idea of exactly what was envisaged by the council fathers. Um, and some of it, uh, <laughs> some of it almost comes into the territory of the, uh, of what might be described as the liturgy wars, the, the discussions that we're having these days about um, the, the relationship really between liturgy and culture. Um, and obviously, with this primarily being a kind of uh, a, a spiritual or, or prayerful uh, walkthrough of the mass, um, there's there's only so much I can say about uh, some of those those points. But as far as what Vatican II meant by the the question of active participation, I think, um, as I understand it, and again, I'm, I could well be proven wrong here. One of the things that Vatican II was very concerned about was trying to encourage all Christians, all of the baptized, not just to turn up to mass and be present at mass, but to really pray the mass um, and to, to engage spiritually with what's going on at the altar. Um, 
And as, as we've heard throughout the three talks that I've given, um, there's a real emphasis now on um, the, the reality of the community gathering, the reality of the community being sent out at the end uh, and that sense of mission. And so uh, the sense of Sunday obligation, which I think in the past there was a very strong cultural sense in Catholicism that you always go to Mass on Sunday and on Holy Days. Um, but I think that might have been at the expense of truly praying what uh, what's going on in front of us and truly engaging um, the the mass as it now is makes it as easy as possible i think um, and certainly has been designed to make it as easy as possible for us to fully and active participate in that sense um now i know that there is some discussion among people about uh, <laughs> um, possibly the way in which that might have ended up uh, manifesting itself in in the church today because there is a lot of emphasis as well on uh, lay ministries so lay readers um, altar servers the mass people bringing up the gifts for example is one one thing that was spoken about today um, and even the fact that the the people are encouraged to make the responses during mass as opposed to before the council where this would typically be done by um, by a server or the servers on behalf of all of the people um, and I'd say in that sense, I, I do think that there's a way that these two things are really interconnected. Um, I certainly know, uh, for instance, that I am far more likely to reflect on the words of the creed at that point in the mass if I'm saying them myself, if I'm following along. Um, and certainly I'm, I'm aware of certain traditions uh, from before the Second Vatican Council, where you might get practices like people, rather than following along with the Mass, um, they might be sitting in their pew praying the rosary for um, you know, however long. Uh, they might even get through multiple sets of, of mysteries over the course of a longer Mass, I don't know. Um, and so my understanding is the main thing that Vatican II wanted out of active participation is to get us all as a community to be following the events of the mass and praying the events of the mass um which is certainly i think what we see now it's it's a lot less common to have um various devotions going on uh, during mass and, and people um certainly praying and, and doing very good things but um not necessarily following exactly what's going on and and i'd say that that's been a huge success from from the second vatican council um so i think i've i've sort of said there um about what what my understanding is of Vatican II's uh, call for active participation uh, and a little bit of what that looks like in practice, because it does include those those practical components of reading, um, being involved in a, in a physical sense and being, um, you know, uh, ministering during the liturgy as well, because that's how humans work. We know that we're going to engage more um, if we do have some kind of um, active role in that sense as well. Um, as for where I might want to see further senses of active part participation in the liturgy, well, I suppose, to my mind, this is one of those areas where I don't see a I don't see a need for the the, the strictly speaking what the church asks. I think is a really good place for us to be, um, but I also think there are some ways in which. The, the way we understand ministries in the light of life of the church 
can be a little bit superficial. And I'd like us to enter a little bit more deeply into that. Um, it's one of the things that Pope Francis has, I think, begun to, to do something with um, in recent years, as you might remember. Uh, in fact, it might have only been last year, Pope Francis opened up the, the lay ministries of lector and acolyte to women. Um, and I've understood that as meaning that there will be the possibility of really rolling out instituted ministries, which historically have been you know, only used in seminaries, really, um, as a step towards priesthood. And these being opened out, as well as the, introduce, uh, the introduction of the ministry of catechist, um, I see these as, as really encouraging signs because it, it will help to overcome this very practical mentality of, um, you know, sometimes right at the beginning of mass, uh, you might see the priest processing in and he realizes there's no reader. And so he shouts across the church, oh, can you do this? Oh, can you do that? Whatever it is. And I think that we can fully and active participate, not just in the sense of the liturgy there and then, but but also to understand what we do at Mass as being a ministry, um, something which we're instituted to do, something that we're trained to do, um, and then also that becomes something that we prepare for a little bit more carefully each time we come to do it. Um, I know that that's not the most uh, easy thing to do all of the time, but I think that that's a kind of sense of direction that I perceive, and and I think that that that's what I'd like to see um, mm. going forward. That's wonderful. Thank you. That I think that was a a very thorough answer to to my question. Um, we have in the studio here uh, Anna Fleischer, and she has a question for you. Hello. Um, Hello. As someone who uh, the main way I tend to sort of actively participate, I guess, in the liturgy is as a musician. I was wondering if you have any thoughts about like the spiritual significance of music in the mass, because I can't remember which Pope it was saying it's the most sort of integral to the liturgy because you're actually saying the words and the prayers of the mass and sort of in tandem with that, often when you are a musician in church, it's, uh, it can sometimes not be a very prayerful experience because you're constantly thinking, ah, what's coming next? And um, do you have any just sort of more practical advice about how to, make it more prayerful i guess um sure okay this is this is something that in seminary as well you have a you have a very similar experience of because um in our community at the moment there are about uh, there are 21 seminarians i think i'm right in saying and um as over the course of time our house has got smaller, there's more and more stuff that needs to be done during the liturgy. Uh, and it's true for priests, of course, as well. Um, they might be sitting uh, during the liturgy of the word, panicking about their homily and if they've got the tone right and if everything's set up. Um, and certainly with musicians, I think it's easy to take for granted the work that musicians do um, in the liturgy. But I think you've identified something really important in the first place, the sense in which um, musicians are singing prayer. Um, the words are inherently something that are prayer um, and guiding other people in prayer. Um, and I think that there's that sense, isn't there, that as, as we've talked about over the course of the past three weeks, um, the community gathers for Mass and that in itself is part of the rite, that is in itself filled with meaning. Um, the fact that the people are sent out at the end of Mass and in that sense, their whole lives are 
something that's being celebrated as part of the liturgy. When it comes to the music, the practical things that we do are just as much an act of service, an act of charity. Um, and if we understand that as prayer, then that can help us enormously. Um, at a more practical level, of course, uh, there are some other things we can do uh, as, as musicians um, to help keep the Mass as prayerful an experience as possible. Um, and some of that comes down to just preparation, trying to keep everything as organised as possible beforehand. Um, I think even sometimes here in the college, um, as, as I am one of the college musicians, we can uh, leave some decisions to the last minute that makes it very difficult to have that kind of calm and recollected uh, attitude during Mass itself. Um, but then also, if we're honest with ourselves and say, well, it's more difficult to pray at Mass when you've got a particular um, duty to fulfil, a particular task, we can make time for prayer before Mass. We can make time for prayer after Mass. And we can also highlight just particular moments where we know we've got an opportunity to really listen at this point. Um, so the two examples that I, I think that when I'm involved in music at the college, I make a particular effort for are, are actually well, the gospel and then the homily, but then also the Eucharistic prayer where um, it's really beautiful, really. The, the musicians are all able in the college to move over to the, um, uh, to, we're up in the choir loft and we all move to the front and kneel for the majority of the Eucharistic prayer. We stand up for the uh, memorial acclamation and then go back down. And I think that that, that really gets to the heart of it. Um, it might not be possible to pray every moment of the Mass perfectly when you've got something else uh, to look after. Um, but you can certainly, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with offering both your efforts and, and combining them with the prayer of the Mass, but then also finding those opportunities where you can and, and do your best. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Um, it's been really, really interesting. And um, we have a little bit of time, so I want to play your final choice of music because... Um, both Anna and I are um, wanting to hear it, actually. And um, and then we'll come back and, and just close with a prayer. But it's been really wonderful having you speak to us about the Mass in slow motion. And um, this last piece of music, I don't know if you want to say something about it or... I don't have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, God So Loved the World, sung by um, Tenebrae, conducted by Nigel Short and composed by Stainer. There you go.
That was God So Loved the World, sung by Tenebrae. And um, Tenefar Crater, I'm going to ask Jonathan Henry just to say a short prayer for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 